Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. This is part two of a sermon entitled A Miracle Inside a Miracle. Let me, again, it's, it's riveting. It's a passage of great power. It displays the mighty hand of Christ in people's lives, the shown as compassion, so much going on here. Let me read the narrative because it's, it's helpful for us just to see it flow together. Starting in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, the word of God reads this. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. He went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction." While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child is not 
has not died but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithia kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat. Let us pray. Father, we, we marvel at your kindness here. Your power, we're in all of it. We, we know that in, a, in just a touch, the act of faith of two desperate individuals, you heal. You talk about displaying greatness in your awesomeness. Here it is. It also speaks to your compassion and your love for those who need the help. Not only did they have physical ailments, Father, but they came with, with an act of belief and knowing that you are the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you only furthered their faith after these events. How could they not tell of the great wonders that you have done? We ask that you would teach us in this narrative, Father, use the Spirit to to drive us to the text, to, to grasp what's happening. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you remember last week, we, we began our study with some theological markers. I, I thought it was important for us just to, to put some things on display. There's a lot of verses here and some things happening, but I just want to remind you just quickly to jog your memory of those three. One of them was to clearly see the divine power of Jesus, that, that Jesus is supreme over everything. He has divine power over creation. He has divine power over sickness. He has divine power over Satan and his minions. And he even has divine power over death. Nothing can thwart him. Nothing can derail him. Jesus will accomplish all that he does, and all that he accomplishes gives him glory and praise. Second, a second theological truth that comes from the passage is just the state of life within these individuals, and in particular, just the reality of what depravity does to us. My wife and I woke up this morning, and and we kind of all, you know, instead of saying good morning, we kind of moaned. We were doing some yard work yesterday, and we just feel the effects of of just life just pressing in on us. But it's a great reminder here of the depravity of man, that man, ever since the fall of Adam, has been on a course of having a sin nature that leads him to stand in judgment to a holy God. And this depravity, this sin that engulfs every person, finds itself as a result to break down our bodies. 
We have sickness. We have disease. We have sorrow. We have suffering. All in this life because our bodies have the full effect of our own depravity. Of course, ultimately, this depravity leads us to an earthly death. We're all headed to the grave. You understand that. And then, last, I wanted us to, to, to grab from this passage the, the compassion of Christ. You can't help but, but see his compassion and kindness to the woman and to the man, and especially to the child. All three of those kind of form a foundation as, as we walk through this narrative. Jesus has divine power over everything. Man is depraved, and yet Jesus shows his compassion. All of this leads to a greater faith in Christ. Speaking of faith, last week we were able to get through the first point and looking at the faith of a loving father. There was much there to be said, but just to summarize a little bit of that, Jairus was intentional, right? He was seeking the only hope that can help him in the midst of life. And that, of course, was Jesus. Leading up to this chapter, we already established the fact that the religious leaders of the day, they, they hated Jesus. They wanted him dead. And yet, in the greatest time of need, what seemed to be lost of all hope, Jairus was determined to find Christ and fall at his feet and worship him. Jairus had already made up in his mind that, that not only did Jesus, he heard about the hearing, he saw some of these, these healings, he saw that all Christ has done, he realized that Jesus is, the, is exactly the answer that he needed for his daughter. Twelve-year-old daughter. Dying. And Jesus shows Compassion. And so in verse 24, you, you have this compassion in action. He, he, he sets off with Jairus, and a large crowd was following him, pressing in on him. Now, this is where we pick up our study in verse 25. And we see an act of another person's faith, the faith of a, of a suffering woman. Look at verse 25 with me. It says, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Pretty significant. This wasn't just an element that, that came and gone. Matthew, Luke, and Mark here all detail the fact that this woman had this condition for 12 years. For that matter, all that knew her knew that she had this condition. Most likely, she was gossiped about as the one with this condition. And what's important about the fact and pointing this out was that her condition made her unclean. All my studies point to the reality that this was hemorrhage was, was from a menstrual cycle. 
And the reason why she was unclean is because of what the law laid out. Leviticus 15, 19 says, When a woman has a discharge, if her discharge is in her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. For whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. There was a process in the midst of that monthly cycle to, to be set apart where she would isolate herself not to interact with the people. It was, a, it was a symbol of uncleanliness. Remember, this is ceremonial uncleanliness. This is not sinful uncleanliness. And the reason we say that is because in the Scriptures, there's no um, truth to, to point to her that she had to have, bring a, a sacrifice to get right with the Lord. But here she found herself in a, in a state of being unclean for 12 years. Those around her would be unclean if they touched her, Scripture says. If they followed her, sat on her chair, or you know, lay in bed with her, any of these things, they too found themselves in a state of being unclean and had to get clean for seven days. Now what this ultimately did is that this removed her from the act and the ability to worship. This removed her from the church, so to speak. She couldn't go to the synagogue because she was unclean. And because she was in a constant flow of blood, there was, there was no hope for her to get clean. Can you imagine, you know, we had a little taste of that with COVID, of, of kind of people staying away a little bit. Could you imagine 12 years of staying away from the synagogue or from church? Now this is important. She was ceremonially unclean and not sinfully unclean. So there was no sin, but the issue of establishing the Levitical law and the Deuteronomic law was the fact that God had chosen his people to be set apart. And they had a prescribed way to, to worship. They, they were unclean because of the holiness of God. And more importantly, when you think about the blood flow that she had, she couldn't enter the temple because the only blood that was acceptable in the temple was animal sacrifices for people's sin. And so she was excluded from this act of worship, drifting away thinking that she is hopeless. She was an outsider. She couldn't find fellowship. Think about that. Our function like other women. For that matter, text doesn't tell us, but if she was married, just think about that type of relationship within the home. Look at verse 26. As it gives us much more color about her situation. Verse 26 and verse 25, a woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but, but rather had grown worse. I mean, she was desperate. She, she desired to get well. She went to the medical experts. She became poor in the process. And Scripture tells us she has gotten worse, grown 
worse. All this to point out that she had no earthly way to get well. I don't think Mark is is pointing fingers at doctors here. Doctors do a great job in the midst of all this in life, yet we both and all know that doctors aren't the ultimate healer, are they? And so it wasn't necessarily, Jesus doesn't point that out, it wasn't sinful for her to go to the doctors. It's just the simple fact that they couldn't heal her. And so you sense the same desperation that, that Jairus had. And then verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, and that's pretty interesting in its case, right? If she is unclean, she has to remove herself from the people. And she, Texas, she heard. She heard in her love for others. She didn't want to make them unclean. But after hearing about Jesus and all that he has done, verse 27 says, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. Hearing about Jesus and the many miracles that he had done and performed. Speaking about his greatness and how awesome he was. In light of that, we can suppose that maybe she covered herself in such a way. We know in her approach to Jesus was behind him. She knows that in the midst of trying to get to Jesus, that she's going to make others unclean. And yet she realizes that this is her only hope. The cloak that Jesus wore there would be an outer garment, like a coat. And she sneaks up behind Jesus and touches this, this cloak. And we get in verse 28 the reason why she does this. And for that matter, it tells us about her faith. It says, for she thought, if I just touched his garments, I will get well. Just get me close enough so I can touch him. This is her faith. This is her faith in Christ. Knowing that if she was to be able to get close in the midst of the crowd of the people, that she can be healed. Verse 29, immediately, and of course, you and I both know this is Mark's favorite word, immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. How did she know that? Well, listen, if you lived with a condition like this for 12 years, instantly you would know the changes. You would understand the power of Christ to heal her. I mean, you think about the side effects that she had most likely encountered. She was no doubt weak, had nausea, dehydrated, all these things. And yet the power of Christ, because of her faith, healed her. Instant healing. You think about 12 years of pain, discomfort, and being ostracized as a person, She is now healed. 
Verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Remember, Jesus is being pressed in on all sides, yet he feels the power going forth from him, and he stops and asks, who touched my garments? I don't think it's necessarily that he didn't know who touched him. I think it was necessarily for us and the sovereignty to understand exactly what happened. And I also think it was for this woman, for him to be able to stop and look her in the eyes and tell her that her faith has made her well. I think we can identify with such an event. This would be like a sporting event or a concert. You ever notice that? The best thing to do is grab a popcorn and, and another soda and wait until everybody leaves. But most often when the concert's over, everybody gets up and what? Heads to the exit. And people are pressing in on you on every side. And so what follows in verse 31 is an appropriate question by disciples. I don't think this was chastising of Jesus, but I think this is just an appropriate question. Verse 31, his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? How in the world are we going to know who touched you? Verse 32. He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling of where what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I think it's remarkable again to just notice the fact that she fell down, act of, uh, of worship, prostrating herself before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Remember the significant point of that? Even the, the, the synagogue official did the same, Jairus did the same thing. Understand that the Israelites, they, they don't fall down and worship anybody but God. And so within her act was a, a definitive statement that Jesus, you are God. She falls down, and she tells him the whole truth. Outside the lines of the page of scriptures, we can kind of get a scene. We, we understand that maybe even when she was covered, her head's exposed, she's now talking to Christ, the people understood who she was. And then verse 34. Jesus, and he said, he said to her, Daughter, by the way, this is the only time that Jesus ever uses this word in the Gospels. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your afflictions. I mean, the statement in itself, as we read it in English, it, it's endearing, it's helpful, we see the compassion, but there's much more going on in the Greek here. Daughter, of course, is a term of endearment. He recognizes her. He looks at her. And Jesus is literally saying, by the tense of the verb healed here, that you go and be in peace and continually be healed. This wasn't just an act of healing to get her through seven days so she can go worship, only to have her affliction later. No, she was completely healed. 
And the crux of all this narrative, you, you have this statement that's next. Your faith has made you well. Literally in the Greek, has made you well is from the Greek word zatso, which is so important for you to understand the significance of that word is a word that is often associated with salvation, to be saved. And not only is she physically healed, but because of her faith, you got this, this connection of the reality that she was also spiritually saved. Jesus is saying, your faith in me has saved you. This is not just physical wellness, but also spiritual salvation. Why? Because her faith was in the one who can redeem her. I mean, this is, like I say, powerful. We know that there's no intrinsic value or power. What I'm trying to say, there's nothing in the gal herself to make her her well. She didn't have power to save herself, right? If that was the case, she didn't need Jesus. But her faith in Christ, in Jesus, made her well. Jesus healed her and saved her. Now get this, just as in our justification when we think about this, in our justification, God does not declare us righteous because of anything that we have ever done. Yet he calls us to have faith in him. Why? Because that faith is the channel in which the grace and the mercy and salvation can come. And so he calls you to believe, knowing that is the channel where you will be justified and you will be sanctified and you will be glorified. Simply, our faith in Christ brings us to the one who can save us. Something else I want you to see and get before we move on. Notice that Jesus didn't rebuke her. Jesus doesn't tell her to go away. And there's a reason for that. Look at the screen, Matthew 12, verse 3 and 7. It gives us clarity on all this. It reads there, but he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, who were judging Jesus and his disciples, as the disciples were breaking man-made Sabbath laws, Jesus said this. He says, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. And here's the key. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. That was the encounter of the Pharisees seeing the disciples picking bread on a Sabbath day and the Pharisees thinking that they trapped him and bringing their ceremonial man-centered law and saying to Jesus, Aha, we caught you. And Jesus says, Listen, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. It's more about the heart. He's more about the reality of what's important 
instead of some ceremonial religious law that does nothing but make you more of a Pharisee than a follower of Christ. I think the simple point is this, that, that God's people are our higher priority. And aren't we grateful for that? Therefore, Jesus didn't make an issue. When this unclean woman came around and touched him, he was compassionate, he was gentle with this woman who had suffered so long. I mean, that's exactly who our Lord is, is he not? We have a Lord and Savior who's compassionate to the undeserved sinner, who's willing to give his grace, who's willing to save, who's willing to impart something that you can't do for yourself, and that is to save you. Which reminds me again, there's no sin greater than his grace. But there's more. Just as the woman was rejoicing in the kindness and grace of Christ, there's an interruption. And it's sad. And so doing, this leads us to our third point in our outline, just to to put some truth on some nails here. It's one, one of those things where you have this issue where Jesus commands faith to a helpless parent. He hasn't forgot about Jairus, right? Verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Indication in the Greek is that it wasn't just a clear statement. It was, it was more of an explanation of what happened. And so there was some color there. But the essence is that your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Jesus is still talking to the woman here. There comes this interruption with the report that Jairus' daughter had died. The report goes to Jairus, and there's no doubt now great disappointment. And of course, at least from the, the ones that came and reported to Jairus, we don't need the teacher anymore. Verse 36. But Jesus... Don't you love that? But Jesus. Overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. This this word, overhearing, has the idea of ignoring what is said. And Jesus says, do not be afraid any longer. The Greek gives us the indication that that don't be anxious about the situation or the news that you just heard. And then he gives a command, only believe. But we ask, 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 believe what? We're kind of left in in hanging to some degree, but, but we know in context, Jesus is saying, only believe why you came to me in the first place. that you wanted your daughter to be healed. Keep on believing, Jairus. I mean, you talk about words of affirmation. You talk about hope being restored in the midst of great wailing. 
Jesus was going to come to heal his daughter. To only be interrupted by a woman who delayed this going and then getting the news that his daughter had died, these reassuring words only believe brings hope again. I have more takeaways at the end of the sermon, but I can't help but just stop and think that even when it looks bad, when trials overcome us, and we're overwhelmed, only believe. I'm not saying that that God's going to do what you want him to do. On the flip side, our faith and only believing in him, he will accomplish all things according to his good and for his glory. The lesson here is no matter the situation, no matter how great the situation is, continue to believe in Christ. That's why I love the scriptures where it tells us to fix our eyes on Christ, fix our eyes on Jesus, fix your eyes on Christ. Verse 37, Jesus takes control. It says, and he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, John, the brother of James. This is the first time we see this grouping of these apostles. We know that we'll see that later in the, in the Gospel of Mark, but here you have this inner group. They're called to come along to see his power. Verse 38 tells us, they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. This would be common. There would be hired people who was their jobs to be professional mourners who would come and aid in the loss of an individual. They would see death. They would know death. They understand their, their purpose the rabbis would say that at a minimum, a family must hire two flute players and one female whaler when there was a death. So there was a prescribed way of, of, of mourning the loss of someone. Probably was more than that. We know that he was a synagogue official, somebody of prominence, probably had some money. Just even in the dynamic of his house, we know that he had, had some kind of wealth. Verse 39, and entering in, he said to them, why make commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Verse 40, they began laughing at him. Literally in the Greek, they began mocking him. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're a professional mourner, knowing the smell and the signs of death, and Jesus comes in and says, she is not died, she is asleep. I think that you would, would start to question the one who said such a thing. In all reality, if you think about the text, they were right. She was dead. But the beautiful thing about it, Jesus shows up, right? Verse 40, but putting them all out. I'm here again, commanding them all to leave. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. 
taking the child by the hand, which, by the way, should be a, another reminder of Levitical law that runs through your mind that touching a dead corpse makes you what? Unclean? Just like the touch of a woman would make Jesus ceremonially unclean, the touching of this dead child would make him unclean. But remember, he's God and he's holy, and nothing makes him unclean. And his love for this family and for this little girl outweighs the ceremonial law and what we saw there in Matthew. Verse 41 goes on to say, And he said to her, Talitha kum, which is, by the way, Aramaic, is what they would talk in those days. He, uh, Mark gives us this translation in the Greek, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Why that is there, I, I, I just think it just shows us the tenderness of Christ in the midst of this. Mark's pointing these things out. Probably it was reminded him and pressed upon him by the Spirit to, to write that. But he tells her to get up. Notice that he didn't say to her, wake up. He said, get up. Verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. Literally in the Greek, is like she was, she was running around the house. And I don't know about you. When we get sick and come out of the bed, what do we got to do? We got to get some strength. We got to get some chicken noodle soup. We're, we're gingerly walking to the kitchen. We, are, we need help. This little girl immediately has vitality in life. Scripture said, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. She has full strength, no rehab, instantly healed, raised from the dead. And the text gives the indication that they were continually completely astounded by this. And rightly so, rightly so. Her jaws dropped to the ground. Verse 43, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And this is kind of an interesting verse. You know, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. I think the indication is that she probably ran straight to the kitchen and, and needing, knowing his, her needs Physically, she needs something to eat. But he gives this order. And by the way, Jesus often does this. He does this throughout the Gospels to, to make sure that don't go tell anybody, don't go tell anybody, don't go tell anybody. Now, we saw with the, de uh, the demon-possessed man, he said, what? Go tell somebody. When we get to Mark chapter 9, verse 9, I think it gives us the answer to why he says these type of things. Look at the screen. It says, by the way, this in context is, is the transfiguration. You got James, Peter, and John, the inner group there. And it says there in verse 9, it says, As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until, until the Son of Man, messianic term, of God until the Son of Man rose from the dead. It makes sense to us. Hold your horses until I complete the act and purpose of why I came. I came to atone for your sins. 
And after the resurrecting from the dead, you can, you can let it go. Let it flow. Don't tell anybody until the work is complete. I think that's important, too, because if you think about all that he is going to do as he heads to the cross, yes, he's doing these miracles, but there's a greater thing that he's going to do than the miracles that he is doing. He's going to atone for sinners' sin. He's going to be their Lord and Savior. He's going to resurrect and ascend. And until then, wait to share all that he has done. I mean, this is just flat out powerful, is it not? Flat out awesome. Now, we're going to be heading to communion in just a little bit. But before we do that, I just want to give you just a a few takeaways from our narrative. I think, for one, the lessons of faith from a desperate father and a suffering woman remind us that the Christian life is not a walk in the park. It will be littered with, with trials. It will have suffering. It will have persecution. Um, Just to remind you, when those things come, turn to Christ. Trust him. Have hope in him and walk in faith. That's the beauty of that scripture where it says that he gives us peace that passes all understanding. The world can't understand. Your life is turned upside down. You've got the, the news that your health is waning. And yet you trust him. We also recognize that he has a purpose, right? And yet in the end of all that, we also know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 39. There's a second takeaway. These miracles that Jesus performs, I think they serve as a, as a taste of the coming kingdom of God where there will be no more sin, there will be no more tears, there will be complete healness, complete healing. Sin will be done away with. We know Jesus is going to reign. We long for that day. It reminds us of Old Testament prophets that predicted a day when God would say, much like in Isaiah chapter 25, where it says, On this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of the people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What a beautiful day. Third, let me just say this. Death has no match for Jesus. Has no match for Jesus. And because of that, why do we fear it? I wrote an article so many years ago to the Times News about the reality. I was reading a Puritan about the whole issue of why don't preachers preach about death? It's okay. It's to our gain that we die. You understand that, beloved? 
death is no match for Christ, for those who are in Jesus. We shouldn't fear because Christ is our victor. Amen? I think there's more that you can dig out of that passage, but it's just so rich and so clear that Jesus is king. We're going to pray here, and as we're doing that, I'm going to ask the men to come that are in service communion this morning. Ask the worship team to come as well. But I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we pray. Father, we, we thank you for this morning and taking us through a divine text. Displays your goodness, your power, your kindness, your mercy, your love. Lord, we can identify with that same salvation that you granted to Jairus and the suffering woman. They came with an act of faith knowing that that would be the channel to receive the grace and mercy and love that you give. We're grateful for that. We're we're hopeful for the reality that you are the way, the truth, and the life and that no one can come to the Father except through you. Father, for the unbeliever out there that is either listening in or, or is here this morning. I just, I just pray, what more do you need? Jesus is all you need. And Father, may you draw them, may you bring them to a place where they receive your grace and mercy, where they express with their mouths that you are Lord and Savior and repent of their sins and believe. We thank you for your grace and your mercy as we head to the Lord's table. It's a great reminder of this great salvation that we just studied. The very fact that you have toned for our sins, that you have given us hope, peace, and love, repentance. The grace that is given, I mean, just so full of your kindness. We thank you for that, and we we count it an honor to, to worship you in this light. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.